The simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Lynn Carson with a PhD in grain sciences. Sharing knowledge and helping you grow connections. Listening to the Baked in Science podcast. Hey, listeners, welcome to this episode of Baked in Science. We have Chadwick White, Shirak Sabunani, and Paul Zyers today as guests, and we're all going to be talking about gluten free breads. I am your host, Lynn Carson, CEO of Bakerpedia, the world's largest online baking encyclopedia that helps solve all your technical questions. Have a question on gluten free? Go Bakerpedia at bakerpedia.com. Today's episode is brought to you by Ingredion. Ingredion is a leading global ingredient solutions provider. Trying to bake gluten-free? Ingredion's experts can show you how to use new clean label or modified starches, flours, pulse proteins, fibers, hydrocolloids, and texturizers to create gluten-free products. Learn more at ingredion.us. That's I-N-G-R-E-D-I-O-N dot U-S. And with me today, we have Chadwick White. He is my favorite gluten-free baking guru. Um, his video has been seen on my channel for over 12,000 views. And on a recent um, post that I did two days ago, you had over 2,000 views, Chad. And it was about the one that, uh, about the pizza that you threw in the air. And people are so amazed by that. So, Chad, uh, welcome. And um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself and uh, what you do? Uh, sure. I'm a certified master baker. I uh, got certified in 1998. Um, I've been baking a total of 30 years. And um, I got into the gluten-free realm sometime around 2006. Uh, started developing formulas <clears throat> for the gluten-free uh, market and uh, actually brought those uh, to the marketplace with Udi's Gluten-Free Foods. Um, in 2008, uh, and then 2012, we sold that off and, uh, started a gluten-free consultancy called, uh, gluten-free baking solutions. And before you did gluten-free, what kinds of breads were you baking? Um, you know, all, all different types, but, um, I worked for Il Fornaio for a while. Um, mm -hmm. I'm an artisan bread baker. They're uh, in Denver. Is that right? Yeah, in Denver. Um, I would, I think, identify as a, identify primarily as an artisan baker. Uh -huh. uh, I've, I've owned a couple of bakeries uh, centered around artisan breads, and uh, I still do a lot of consulting for those types of bakeries. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about your story? I mean, most artisanal bakers who don't have celiac disease don't just fall into gluten-free. How did you fall into gluten-free? Oh, gosh. I, I met this woman uh, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. She had moved to Boulder, and uh, she had severe food allergies. And her daughter and her son both had celiac disease. Um, she had developed these muffins over the course of 35 years, had fine-tuned them. When she moved to Boulder, the high altitude, they, didn't they, they no longer worked for her, obviously. So she got a hold of me 
to uh, help her balance them. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got her formulas, all of her muffin recipes balanced. Uh, but she basically introduced me to the free from market. She dumped 35 years of uh, free from information on my lap. <laughs> You're lucky. Uh, she absolutely amazing woman. Um, her name is Anne Marie Demuth, and she was the person responsible for having yellow dye number five taken out of Cheerios. Wow. Uh, she showed me, you know, years of correspondence with the FDA and, <sighs> and other organizations. And I can only imagine that they, they cringed whenever they saw the uh, caller ID come up because she, <laughs> she, she, she would call me sometimes two, three times a day just to check up on things. She so. is persistent, isn't she? she, did, she did, <laughs> did, did you by any chance work with her to bring anything to the market? Well, we were trying to do that. Um, that was the goal. She wanted to commercialize her muffins, and uh, I thought they were amazing. They were oat-based, completely allergen-free, and uh, great, great flavors. So I was in the process of helping her commercialize those, actually bring them to market. Uh, we were looking, I, you know, looking for co-manufacturers and uh, that type of thing. And unfortunately, she fell ill and. Uh, uh, wasn't able to finish the uh, the project. She actually ended up dying. Uh, oh, <laughs> sorry to hear that. So, oh boy. Um, so, how did that get you started with Udi's? Well, uh, her daughter Karen uh, had, of course, celiac disease, and she oh. was showing me some of the breads that she had to eat, and uh, they were at that time, um, two thousand four or five. They were really quite bad. Yeah, <laughs> at least in my opinion, that's true. Yeah, um, <laughs> dry and crumbly did not uh, did not have the texture of bread. Um, so I kind of bounced some ideas off of her. Uh, kind of pulled from the uh, ingredient library that I had and mm-hmm. uh, started putting together breads that I thought would. Uh, kind of, you know, fix some of the, those issues at that time, which were, you know, the, the typical dry crumbliness. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I actually had a few ingredients in-house that, uh, that allowed me to, to produce a dough, uh, kind of similar to the pizza dough that we did at the class. And uh, I started trying to find par- business partners to bring that product to market and eventually found Udi and Itai Baron. Uh, and they were willing to give it a chance. Wow! Uh, I made up a bunch of samples. We took it down to the uh, Celiac Sprue Association's uh, annual uh, get-together, and uh, everybody kind of flipped out. So That's amazing, and bam, you got Udi's gluten-free yeah, bread, right? Exactly. <laughs> That's um, quite a was, story. Yeah, it was fun, for sure. Um, what is it that amazes you about this particular gluten-free market? You exited with Udi's, so why are you still in it? It's just it just keeps going, and the we now have the ingredient manufacturers on board, and they are producing the ingredients that we need to to make good gluten-free products. How difficult was that? In the beginning, yeah, <laughs> very, very. Good. Nobody didn't. Nobody wanted to do it, right? Well, you know, there's nobody wanted to do it. Everybody thought it was going to be a low carb part two. Right. Um, you know, we did all of this development for the low carb craze, and uh, and then it piddled out. You know, so we invested two years of development time, and then 
nothing went to market. So, you know, I think the ingredient manufacturers didn't want a repeat of that. They thought it was maybe going to be similar. And um, so, you know, in the early stages, it was, uh, there was just nothing available. Right. Um, I wanted an enzyme blend for uh, my breads at Udi's. And I bet you nobody wanted to do that. <laughs> no. And, and uh, you know, there were only three, three approved outlets for Novozymes uh, maltogenic alpha amylase in the U.S. And I ended up getting AB Mari to under the table. I probably shouldn't say this, but <laughs> get him to send me <laughs> under the table some of that uh, liquid uh, <laughs> amylase. And <laughs> um, you you played around with it. <laughs> yeah, and 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 uh, you know the mana units on that are so high, you had to really dilute it. Down. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't want to uh, deal with that. <laughs> I had to create a calculator. Uh, because oh my gosh. Every batch is different yep. from the manufacturer. So yet I had to create a calculator based off of the uh, number of mano units that they had uh, in that, that they had in that particular batch. Uh, now, so it was really challenging. Now, you know, I, I really think um, you have your heart, you know, and your passion in this trade and that's what makes you so good at it. Um, you know, that, that that video that I mentioned just now that with you throwing the pizza dough in the air, um, that really wowed a lot of people. Um, one of the biggest questions that came out of there was um, they want to know uh, how you made it so elastic. Can you share that? Sure. No, it's very simple. It's pre-gel tapioca starch. It's not simple, Chad. <laughs> a lot of us have done this and it's not simple. Why, why this particular ingredient? Um, when tapioca starch, um, is highly film forming and the starch matrix is, um, it's very, uh, I, I guess the way to say it is it has a lot of cross bonding. Mm -hmm. So when you've gelatinized that starch, it has the elasticity uh, of gluten. Essentially, if you compare the two side by side, they, they look very similar. That's uh, true. It's kind of like rubbery. It's rubbery, but right? it holds together. And you can, if you, if you just hydrate that starch by itself, you can pull a window in that starch. Wow. Um, okay. So, so with, not with any other pre-gel starch, just with this particular tapioca strain? Um, yeah, I mean, like if you were to use rice, the, the structure right. is much more short, okay. uh, it would pull apart. The same with corn, uh, potato would be kind of pasty. Right. Um, you know, so really it's, it's, it's unique, uh, among the starches. Right. At least that I found up to this point. Um, okay. I will say that pre-gel amaranth flour, the whole flour is, is very much the same, a little bit more rubbery. Uh, doesn't have quite the extensibility, but you can pull a window in, in pre-gel amaranth flour a little bit better than you can even in tapioca. Right. So That's uh, neat. Because that's the other question um, that uh, um, the viewer had was um, one of the things that uh, they were worried about is, you know, is it just one ingredient? Is it the process? So using what I usually do, uh, whether it's pre-gel amaranth or, or pre-gel tapioca, I add that in anywhere between 10% of the total weight of the flour to 
uh, depending on how much elasticity I want. Mm -hmm. The remaining 75 to 85 or 90 percent of the uh, the ingredients are are just other gluten-free flours. Um, usually in my formulations, I'm at about 40 to 50 percent whole grain flour, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then the remaining remaining 50 to you know 60 70 percent, uh, depending on the formula, of course, is going to be starches. Um, another question was: Is there any uh, machinability tolerance for this particular dough? So what's really nice is that you can actually get uh, the viscosity, the uh, viscoelasticity that is very similar to a wheat dough. So you can actually process on conventional horizontal sheeting equipment and sheeting lines. Okay, uh, laminating lines will work without better. without any more like maybe cellulose or pre-gels or gums? Sometimes it depends on what I'm looking to achieve, obviously. The pre-gels mm -hmm. will add enough binding on their own that you don't have to add gums. Uh, but for long-term uh, water storage, I'll usually add, you know, uh, a couple of different gums. Um, I, I love cellulose gums, HPMC. Uh, K4M is probably my go-to uh, in terms of HPMC. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, for for lo for breads, I would say if I'm doing a laminated dough, I might go with like an E4M. Okay. Uh, but I use xanthan gum, and if I use xanthan gum, I always do a one to one with locust bean gum. Mm -hmm. uh, what, why do you do that? They're synergistic, and when the two gums are are uh, blended, then they will actually form a gel on their own. Neither one will form a, a rigid gel. I see. Uh, and then the resulting gel is much more uh, elastic than just xanthan by itself. Okay. And um, in terms of proofing and baking, how much time do you let these doughs proof for? Uh, I find that they're actually identical in, to in total proof time to a, uh, a conventional wheat bread. Really? Um, so if I'm doing loaf breads, anywhere between 35 and 50 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll usually proof at about uh, 85 to 90 percent relative humidity and um, 100 degrees Fahrenheit on average. That's Nine, very typical. Yeah, off, off wheat doughs. Yeah. Okay, I have one more question before we go to our next guest, and that is this is a really wide question. Um, how do that's that's a question coming out from Australia. How do you make white bread gluten-free good like how do you make it voluminous how do you make it elastic what is it, the secret ingredient or process <laughs> i think there's a few there's a few different ways to achieve that goal um using that modified tapioca starch uh or the pre-gel tapioca starch rather it could be native or modified either one mm -hmm. um that's one way of doing it uh, because you're getting the viscoelastic properties of that to, to hold or entrap air. So you can get volume that way. Uh, the other way to do it is to run a batter-based bread uh, mm -hmm. that utilizes modified starches. Uh, sometimes native starches will work. The Novation series from Ingredion has really been great. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of uh, high-functioning starches and flours that, uh, that will uh, marry well together and allow you to get good volume. And then I, liked, I love, the, like I mentioned before, the cellulose gum. Um, I'm able to get uh, gluten-free breads with the volume that you would expect out of a wheat-based bread. 
and that are staying really soft. Um, I'm partnered with a starch chemist in Thailand that's developed a, a tapioca starch uh, that functions like wheat starch, uh, is considered a resistant starch and does not retrograde easily. Uh, and as a consequence, the, the loaves of bread that are made with it stay soft for a very long period of time. Okay. Uh, I'm getting, you know, um, I'm getting about 21 days ambient shelf life, give or take. That's awesome. All right, we are going to bring our next guest on. Hi, Shirag. Hi, Lynn. How's it going? I'm good. Uh, Shirag is calling in all the way from India. And uh, can you t tell our listeners what do you do, Shirag? Sure. Uh, so, Lynn, we run a gluten-free design and manufacturing firm based in India. Uh, our focus is making gluten-free mixes, primarily for the hotel and bakery industry. So somewhat similar to what uh, Chad has done, but on a much smaller scale, much more nascent. And in many ways, uh, you know, we're at where he was at in 2004 or 2000, sorry, 2006. So it's really fascinating and fantastic listening to him because, you know, I can see where he's taken it. Right, yeah. exactly. So that's what we do. Right. Um, and uh, I know that the gluten-free market in India is booming because I've gotten a lot of questions from that region. Um, what do you do at your company? Are you a baker? Are you a developer? So I'm a material scientist. So oh. I, I did my, yeah, <laughs> I, I look at things from an applied physics perspective. I studied material science in Northwestern. And uh, the wow. one class I remember there very distinctly was materials design and in particular food design. So when I, um, I used to work in the States for a long time. And when I came back to India, I said, hey, you know, I want to get into innovation in the food space. And very similar to what we just heard, we had some family friends who said, look, you know, we get pretty good gluten-free options in the West by the name of Udi's, uh, but the options in India suck. So can yep. you please develop some? So I took it on as a personal mission. And while we originally started with the plan to have bakeries all around India that were servicing the needs of people that wanted free from options, uh, we just had certain hotels that got in touch with us and said, look, we really like what you're doing. Can you supply us the flour mixes? And so that's exactly where we came up with these bakery mixes for breads, cakes, pizzas, cookies, so on and so forth, which we supply into a lot of the, the premium hotels here, uh, there, there are a few competitors in the space that tend to focus more on the cost-conscious consumer. And that's something where the market is growing. But again, gluten-free is a premium category, which is taking shape now. Right. That's very good. You know, uh, from your background as a, a polymer scientist, I can relate to that because I've done that before. And the gluten-free space is very interesting because it's all polymers, right? It's all macromolecules. It's all how they interact. And um, definitely, I can see why your passion is in here. My question is, though, are there a large portion of celiac uh, disease um, uh, population there in India? So if you look at some of the studies out there, uh, they're finding that because wheat 
is non-native to the diet in various parts in India. Right. The incidence of higher higher levels of wheat currently, especially, you know, a lot of traditional bakers throw in gluten into wheat already to make it even more elastic, right? Right. So the the incidence of celiac is going up. The issue is the diagnosis of celiac is still not there yet. Right. Uh, in North India, we have quite a bit of diagnosis, which is becoming more and more prominent. South India, it's still not coming along. But I think as, you know, as people over here tend to learn a bit more about what they're eating and what's good for them, they're an active interest. So when you're getting a lot of questions from people on that topic as well, it is those people, it starts with the, the people ahead of the market, right? So they'll read up about gluten-free or the free-from diets. They'll write to you. And as then they talk to their 10 friends and their 10 friends talk to 10 friends. That's how the market starts essentially yeah. growing. Yeah, what I see as a, an opportunity for you guys is really the sustainable sustainability issue because you don't grow wheat and um, those grains are, you know, um, locally sourced. So I'm always a big advocate for, you know, eating what you grow around your area. And I think this trend is just going to take off in India. So, so we actually do grow a, a fair amount of wheat, but Indian wheat doesn't have a lot of gluten in it. It's more of um, all-purpose flour as opposed oh, to high okay. gluten flour. Um, yeah, so we do grow a lot, but you're right. It's not native to India per se. It was brought into India for cultivation. Right. Uh, but the beauty of what, you know, the fortunate position we're in is that we have over like 2,000 kinds of rice in India. So when wow. we're looking for alternatives for wheat, we have this plethora of moisture rices, so on and so forth. We just have this insane plethora which we can choose from, which is one of the awesome ways in which we've been able to develop our products. Sharak, what is the top selling item that you have right now? Bread mixes, straight up bread mixes. It's probably about 50% of our sales. Very cool. And um, what is the biggest challenge that you have? I think it's that very point which we spoke about. I think there are basically two issues here, right? One is the chicken and egg, which Chad spoke about as well. You know, we've got a lot of people that don't know whether this market's going to go places. So they're hesitant at this point still to invest in it. And we've worked with some industries who we have on board. They started gluten-free products and they're impressed with the response that's coming through. Uh, but it's still getting through the motions of convincing people that, you know what, this is a market that's worth reckoning. Uh, that's the first challenge. The second challenge is gluten-free inherently as a category is going to be more expensive than traditional bakery. And when you're, when you're working with a population that doesn't come from the same income levels as it does in the West, that's true. people are a bit more conscious with spending a little bit more. So that's, that, those are two things that are holding the market back. And I feel it's a matter of time and a matter of recognition that will allow that market to blossom. I mean, psyllium husk is expensive there, and we use a lot of psyllium husk because it's a digestive ingredient that also is gel forming. Mm -hmm. So we like that and we want to give people that. But again, it comes at a cost, which has to, the consumer has to bear. Correct. Um, so we have the gluten-free baking guru here with us today. Do you have any problem-solving questions that you need solved? 
Oh, I was I was frantically taking notes while he was speaking <laughs> earlier. <laughs> um, you might have to play these podcasts again. <laughs> oh, absolutely! I'm looking forward to hearing it because uh, a lot of what uh, Chad, a lot of what you were speaking about, you know, the tapioca starches um, is you know really amazing for us to learn about because in gluten-free we're always trying to find ways to create that matrix right essentially that matrix that replaces gluten and allows your product to grow and take that elastic shape so i i'm excited to try your stuff i know we've, we've talked a little bit about it offline and i'm looking forward to getting those samples and giving it a go in our products cool chirak do you have a shelf life question to ask today yeah, I do. I mean, we, we touched a bit about a bit on it. And really what we're trying to do right now is in India, we're at a stage in the market where there is enough consumption. But in from the point of getting product baked to the consumer onto shelves and then withstanding that shelf life, we're really trying to get up from uh, through a combination of product and packaging from, you know, two weeks all the way up to three months. So, Chad, you spoke a bit about getting it up to one month. I'm wondering, is there any way you can think of to extend that shelf life further? Yeah, I've done a fair amount of testing with uh, modified air packaging. Um, I think that that is definitely a, a you know a one way to do it. Um, I'm seeing some shelf life, uh, some products that are demonstrating 165 days. Wow! Wow! Um, and staying soft throughout. And of course the key there is to stay off retrogradation. So, um, you know, picking and choosing the proper uh, base starches that are going to kind of allow you to do that. Uh, finding gums that will, of course, you know, um, hold moisture long-term and, uh, and not let it go. Right. So what particular ingredients starts off this kind of starch retrogradation? Well, resistant starches uh, obviously won't retrograde. Correct. Um, which is, you know, I had mentioned the the starch that we carry, um, but uh, you know, there's others. Uh, Ingredion carries a product called Expandex uh, okay. that is a uh, hydroxypropyl distarch phosphate, uh, mm -hmm. which is a chemically uh, produced resistant starch. Mm -hmm. And. Uh but basically, the whole entire gluten-free system is, you know, filled with a lot of other kinds of starches. How do you stop those from, you know, uh, cross-linking uh, up and, you know, solidifying the, the network? You know, I, I think <clears throat> keeping moisture in the loaf as long as you can. Is so that's of, why the matte packaging then? Yeah. And, yeah. Um, uh, and well, and of course you know, the presence of oxygen accelerates that, so. Okay, so how about the antimicrobial aspects? When, when you do bat packaging, do you even need to put antimicrobials in there? Um, yes, uh, you still need to, well, obviously you've got to be able to package under conditions that, you know, uh, dissuade <laughs> microbial growth. <laughs> yeah, so, um, that means cleaning your kitchen, you know, filtering your air and all the other good stuff about sanitations. <laughs> yeah, and don't let and your package, your your product sit on the floor for hours Correct. before you package it. Uh, right. Try to get it into the package as quickly as possible. What's the internal temperature do you recommend um, gluten-free breads to be packed at? Uh, below 90. 
below 90? Is it sliceable? It should be at that point. Yeah. I mean, the, one of the bigger issues with gluten-free is that some of the starches don't set at the same right. rate that wheat starch does. Uh, and they stay, especially tapioca, cause they tend to be gummy for a longer period of time. So, um, you know, it's, when you build a formula, you obviously have to, uh, blend in certain starches to achieve the mouthfeel and the texture and things that you're looking for. Let's summarize what you suggest for extending the shelf life of gluten-free breads. So um, what I heard was let's cool the bread down um, to about 90 degrees Fahrenheit, slice it and mat pack it, and pretty much you have a shelf life between 90 to over 100 days. Is that correct? Uh, you can in modified air packaging, yes. Okay. Are there any other secrets? Um, well, uh, obviously freezing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Chirac, you have your answer there. Did, did you take all your notes? Good to me. <laughs> I did, frantically, frantically writing over here. <laughs> um, well, we have uh, Chad on the line right now is there any other question that you have not at the moment i mean our big achilles heel with uh, the breads has been retrogradation and i think we have a really good answer for it i mean most definitely modified air packaging is something i need to research some more but that that really is the achilles heel we face and i think we have a good roadmap to go forward on that now that's awesome so this is all the questions these are all the questions i have for you today chad okay that's no more i promise <laughs> um, but thank you guys for coming on this podcast and i really appreciating you uh participating thank you so much thank yeah, you, you. bye-bye i'd like to thank ingredient for sponsoring this episode remember what chad said about expendex Yes, the magical ingredient that helps delay staling. Well, Ingredion is the provider of Expendex, a modified tapioca starch specifically designed to aid in resiliency and expansion. Want a better texture or volume for your gluten-free dough? Contact Ingredion at 1-800-713-0208 and ask for a sample of Expendex today. Today we have Paul Zayers, owner of Energy Recovery Partners. Welcome, Paul. Hi. Paul, you have been in this industry for a while. Um, as a food safety expert, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Okay, our company is focused on providing solutions for food plant, mainly air-related solutions to prevent contamination and cross-contamination. What experience do you have in the baking industry? Well, um, I have uh, like over 20 years experience mm -hmm. and uh, I've gravitated from environmental to focusing on food plants. Mm -hmm. I've came up with solutions for, uh, like I said, pet food plants to every type of food plant there is. What is it about the air that uh, requires food safety solution that you provide, for example? 
Well, um, typically uh, some food plants uh, end up purchasing plants that were existing. And these plants are not necessarily set up for their type of of, uh, production of food. Uh And when they start to add processes in the plant, uh, it's easily... Uh, if they don't have the proper amount of makeup air in the plant, filtered makeup air, the plant becomes negative. Same thing for plants that put additions on new, uh, that onto their plants, and uh, it uh, always be, they typically put um, equipment, uh, HVAC equipment on the plant, but not necessarily control it in any manner to prevent contamination and cross contamination. That's true. That That's a tough one. You know, especially in what I see right now, some bakery plants uh, moving into the gluten-free field. And they are trying to make one portion of the plant gluten-free and the other portion not good, you know, the traditional bakery items. Have you dealt with such issues before? Yes, I have. And, and I think the key is... Um, you know, like I mentioned on our website and some handouts when people contact me, is we have a five-step approach. Uh-huh. Uh, but the first steps of the approach is actually to do a study on the plant. Mm-hmm. Actually look at the cubic footage, look at how they process their food, and then uh, if they don't have segregation of those areas, develop ways with air-related solutions to provide and reduce, uh, provide uh, air and and heat transfer, et cetera, of uh, BTUs, especially for uh, like the oven room in the bakery, mm-hmm. um, and be able to do it without uh, prov- uh, causing any kind of contamination or cross-contamination. Great, and what are the, what are the other four steps that you suggest? Well, uh, the, the first, like I said, the first step is to go there, um, do the analysis. You got you caught me here, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I don't know if I got it in front of me, but it's a PDF on my computer that I actually have a hard copy on. I'm sorry, okay. but uh, <laughs> I hope you edit this. Um, but um, but basically, it, it drills down to how you ha- how your existing conditions are developing a solution, in other words, do a total design on it based on mathematics, and then implement that design by selecting the proper HVAC equipment. And I don't believe much in ductwork because ductwork causes a lot of issues, especially on the packaging side of the uh, product where you might air condition that. Mm-hmm. And then, then ductwork causes uh, moisture to drip off the ductwork, et cetera, That's which you true. don't really want to have on your product. And then to control it. The last one is to control it, and that's to have a building management system that's flexible enough that you constantly monitor differential pressure in a room and make it automatically makes these changes so you never have uh, uh, air going where it should not be going. And so there is hope for bakeries that want to segregate its gluten-free uh, production. Correct. 
Okay, so Correct. I don't need I mean, to be going out and buying a whole new facility to do that. No, you don't. I okay. mean, the, num the first thing that they really should do is really take a look at their vendors and certify their vendors. Because if your vendor is supplying, say, flour, mm -hmm. uh, gluten-free flour, um, the, the number one cause of, of that type of contamination is from the vendor. Mm -hmm. And so you got to make sure that uh, you have certified suppliers, however right. you do that, whether you do, I suggest doing it yourself. And uh, the, the second thing is where you store that raw material. Let's say if you run uh, gluten-free product and other products with gluten in, you, they shouldn't be stored together. They should be stored, uh, they should be segregated. They should be mm -hmm. in different areas because that dust is so fine, it can get um, all over that plant. And that's one thing you really don't want to do is have the contamination before you mix it. Mm -hmm. um, should I continue? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. And then, you know what? Um, I've worked at quite a few snack bakeries where you have multiple lines. Um, if possible, you should have dedicated lines. Now, that doesn't necessarily um, happen stop all the time. Any type. Yeah, that doesn't happen <laughs> all the time, but it yeah. doesn't stop the cross contamination either. So, I mean, it's. Um, pretty important that when you do the sanitation that not only do you do a proper sanitation of the equipment mm -hmm. but HV a lot of plants forget about HVAC for right. sanitation mm -hmm. and because otherwise that that uh, air could hang around that plant stick on the wall ceiling or whatever and and sometime in the future cause a problem um, so if you cannot segregate it you can actually segregate it within the room with the air you supply and exhaust you supply in the room. So let's just say in, and that could happen in where you mix it, mm -hmm. bake it, or package it. It's strategic placement of filtered air going right. in that room and where it's exhausted. So if it, if you want gluten-free, that should be the cleanest air, the most pressurized area of the room. And where where sense. it's gluten side, you could pull the air over that way to prevent that cross-contamination. That's true. That's true. Now, that's, that sounds a little more challenging um, than in most plant operations. Is there a particular site to this that is the most... Um, challenging in terms of segregating the gluten-free items what's the most difficult thing that you've faced well i guess where they had seven oven lines in the plant wow in one building and they ran a variety of different products through mm -hmm. these oven lines and um here again i segregated gluten-free by strategically placing the makeup air in that room so that it would exhaust on the uh, gluten side of the room right. and you control all your air based on uh, with a building management system. The building management system 
is the key. And uh, that's why we call our company uh, Energy Recovery Partners, because you're going to save all kinds of energy on top of it. In fact, uh-huh. I just did a study at a plant. Um, well, actually, I did a couple in the last two weeks where um, they're pretty much in these plants are unaware of how serious a problem they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, what really surprised them when I find out how much energy waste they have. Uh, so in one plant that I presented on Thursday, in fact, uh, I have the document here. Uh, it's about a half inch thick from the study. <laughs> they saved over $100,000 a year in energy waste mm-hmm. when they implement my solution. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be, uh, as far as any type of contamination, they'll be in much better shape than they are right now. So. so that sounds like a really large amount of money saved. Can you quickly touch on uh, or summarize what you did for them? Yes. Basically, um, they had uh, a mechanical contractor do the HVAC in the plant. And, and uh, I, you know, I'm pretty much an expert at doing analysis, and mm-hmm. that is what's lacking in a lot of plants, that the analysis of the building is not uh, looked at when HVAC is added. Uh-huh. They'll, they'll say, you know, they'll say they need X amount of exhaust in the room. Mm-hmm. Well, by having proper uh, collection, you could actually reduce that amount of exhaust. So... Uh, you need less makeup air, and that's how you start saving energy, and that's how you do a better job of collecting contaminants that should not be in any part of the process. That's really good. Paul, do you have any other suggestions for our bakers who are listening in in terms of uh, um, helping them save money on energy? Well, As far as saving money on energy, I would say that um, um, what I typically see is that uh, as they put, especially plants that have additions onto their plant Mm -hmm. and they increase the production, um, typically those additions are done by um, building companies who put standard HVAC on the building. And what I mean by that, whether they air condition or heat it, those calculations are probably done properly. Mm-hmm. And the air conditioning is looking at the bottom eight feet of the room. And uh, the heating part is looking at the, the complete plant and uh, how much insulation there is, windows, people. Oh, they, they, they might look at, uh, uh, well, they look at people maybe, and, and they might look at processes. But they don't necessarily look at, you know, how many electrical motors there are, et cetera. So the standard HVAC is great when the building's empty. But when you start putting processes in the room that create heat and you need more air turns Mm -hmm. and then more exhaust is usually added and people will complain that, boy, this part of the plant is really hot. And that's usually where the exhaust is. Yeah, and uh, they just don't have the air turns. Right. So for especially for oven rooms, there should be makeup air 
for each oven room and some of the solutions that I'd use have I do not burn natural gas for makeup air. I use stratified air mm -hmm. by using mixing fans. Therefore, you come up with some pretty good savings. That's interesting. Yeah, so um, I bet you can give you know a few hours long lecture just on this alone. And um, I'm sure our listeners would like to learn more. Uh, is there any way that they can contact you? Sure. They could reach me at paulz at energyrecoverypartners.com. Dot com. They and could also energy. You want me to spell it out? Um, yes, please. It's P A U L mm -hmm. Z mm -hmm. at E N E R G Y R E C O V E R Y P A R T N E R S dot and com. Okay, and a good number to reach you would be? 262-224-3173. They could also go to my LinkedIn page or our website, company website, and there are some examples on there. Oh, great. And, and um, some case studies on LinkedIn. Um, I should really post some more, but there's yeah. a few there. That'll be awesome. Well, um, thank you for coming on to the show today, and I am sure you are going to get some more calls. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. You have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you to our friends at Surrender for sponsoring this podcast. For over 20 years, Surrender has supplied bakers and snack makers with organic, non-GMO, and gluten-free ingredients. With expertise in tapioca starches and sweeteners, sustainable palm oils, and lecithin. Learn more at surrender.com. That's C-I-R-A-N-D-A.com. Or call 715-386-1737 today. Hey, one last thing. Follow me on LinkedIn where I reach over 5,000 baking professionals every day. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Thank you for all your wonderful feedback. Well, until the next episode, bake you later.